If you will, this morning, turn in your Bibles to almost the end of the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews this morning, just concluding our brief interlude on diagnosing ourselves as to what a healthy church member is. We come to the end of our time in this particular study before jumping back, Lord willing, next Sunday in John's Gospel transitioning into chapter 6 and continuing to march through the Gospel of John. I want to speak to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. We'll look at verses 12 through verse 15 this morning with a special emphasis on verse 13. Take care, brethren. Take care. Take care, take heed. That there not be in any of you, in any one of us, an unbelieving, evil heart that falls away from the living God. That's quite the admonition, isn't it? Take heed. This is not hypothetical. It's not filler. It's not beautiful prose. This is a call to everyone listening this morning. You and I, we need to take care to examine ourselves and to make sure that there is not in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart that would fall away from the living God. And now we find the conjunction and the great antidote in part to this great dilemma that there might be someone here who would have an evil, unbelieving heart. God provides the other side now of that coin in verse 13. But, but rather encourage One another, day after day. So long as it is still called today. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. Well, it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Father, help us as we come to this critical passage nestled here within this great book of exhortations and admonitions there is this gem buried before us and we pray that you would give us keen minds to mine it out and not only to mine it out but to apply it to our lives to be shaped into what you would have us to be to know what you would have us to know to love what you would have us to love All to be a tool in your hand to accomplish what you will accomplish by your gracious decree and will. May we be humble, willing participants for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Within the body of Christ, within this church, within the room this morning, and the many who are not in the room this morning because they are traveling or ill, there are, and I think you would agree with me, that within our church there are a multiplicity of gifts. There is no shortage of gifted people. I often say to people when I'm having a discussion about something that's way above my pay grade, I'm really glad God made smart people. When I go to a doctor, I say, I'm really glad God made smart people. When I drive my car, I say, I'm really glad God made smart people, and some of you are those kind of smart people that are able to 
think and develop and design things. And when I get on an airplane, I'm really glad God made smart people. But you know what? I'm really glad God has made gifted people. Not just smart, but gifted people. In this room is filled with those gifted people because as the children of God, He gives gifts to all His children. And it's not a small percentage of us that have a gift. It's all of us are gifted in some way. And there are a wide variety of those gifts here this morning. And you all, God makes Colonial Bible Church what it is, but you reflect what God is doing at Colonial Bible Church in your lives, in how you serve, in formal ways and in informal ways. You know, that's one of the most common questions, I think, in 20 years of pastoral ministry that I've received. How do I know what my gift is? Pastor Brian, how do I know what my spiritual gift is? What? What, what do you, is there a test I can take? Is there something I can do? You know, there's tests, there are, they're helpful to a degree. But I often tell people, you know, what do you love to do? What, what, what makes your, your bell ring? What, what, what do you just enjoy doing? That's probably how God's gifted you. What comes natural to you? What do you, what, 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 what do you enjoy? How can I serve? Well, According to your giftedness, I, you know, that's the way you don't burn out. <laughs> Trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, you know, you'll just wear the corners and the edges off, and it's good for nothing at that point. Trying to get people to serve or to do things that are completely contrary to how God's wired them, that's not wise. It's a sure way to cause burnout. And so our, our giftedness will determine, in some measure, our service within the church. And every one of us are called to invest and serve in some way. But there is one gift, there is one service, that it was without qualification. It's one that all of us are to develop and cultivate and use. And that is the gift and the service to one another of encouragement. Encouragement is one of the few acts of service in the New Testament that is so significant, by the way, so significant, so needed in the body that it got someone named after it. His name was Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. And according to Hebrews chapter 3, there is an element in which all of us, because it's not specified, all of you who have the gift of encouragement, encourage one another while it is still called today. That's not how it reads, is it? It's a blanket statement. All of you are to encourage one another. All of you are to be a Barnabas, Acts 4.36. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, no less, which is translated meaning the son of encouragement. And so within the healthy church, there needs to be a flock of Barnabases or Barnabets, as the case might be, people who encourage in a biblical way. No, there is not a soul here this morning that does not appreciate encouragement. There's not one of us who does not thrive on encouragement. And there is probably not one of us here this morning that has not been in a position in life where you think, I will not be able to take one step further. And then God in his kindness has someone come along at the right time and they encourage you and at that point, you're ready to sail around the world. That's all it took. A, a loving nudge. We all love to be encouraged. We all need to be encouraged. And the question for us this morning is, how might I, as a healthy believer, as, as one whose spiritual health is where it should be, how might I be that kind of encourager? 
Well, in order to do that, I want us to look at what the writer of Hebrews chapter 3 says. And there are ingredients that make all of us the healthy church member that we should be in this avenue of encouragement so that we are building up one another. Ephesians 4, right? The metaphor of the house. We are, God has gifted all of us so that we build one another up. And one of the ways we do this is encouragement, but we first need to define what encouragement means. It's important to know exactly what I'm speaking of and what the writer of Hebrews has in mind here in the text because it is, is not open to a, a wild and wide variety of interpretations. He has in mind a very specific thing, as you'll see, going through the text together this morning. But we need to define what we mean by encouragement because it can conjure up a wide variety of meanings. Here are some of the meanings that you'll find in dictionaries. Encourage. To urge strongly. To appeal to. To urge. To exhort. To encourage. To make a strong request for something. To implore someone or entreat someone for something. Or to instill someone with courage or comfort or cheer. Or To treat someone in an inviting or congenial manner. To invite them in, to be conciliatory towards them, to be friendly, to speak in a friendly manner. And I would say as we hear all of those, we all say, well, those all make sense. And you know what? They do. There's not one of those definitions that are wrong. They're all correct. But, But do you know what I mean when I say there's encouragement? And then there's encouragement. I think about Job's friends, you'll remember them. Job's counselors. Job's encouragers who come in the name of encouragement and comfort and were anything but. You'll be familiar in your own life or those with those in your life that you've encountered who were exhorters. But in their exhortation, they only made you feel worse about where you were. You know, the, the, the coach that comes along and it's your first day lifting weights and he puts 225 pounds on the barbell and says, now bench press this. Come on. And he's yelling at you and he's got his whistle and he's, he's, he's encouraging, but not in an appropriate way. I can't lift this. And you leave more discouraged than you were when you came. They're more drill sergeant than encourager. Then there are those who are encouragers and, man, they just speak pleasant words. Beautiful words. Words that just make you feel so good. But words that may not be true. They may be flattering you. Reminded of Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 6 where it says this. You know the verse. Faithful are the wounds of a... A friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I'd rather have a friend tell me the truth and it hurt than someone flatter me and kiss me while they're putting a knife in my back. That's not encouragement. Hey, so much of the stuff that passes off as spiritual nowadays isn't encouragement, it, it, it's lies. It's feel good, but it's poison. So none of these rise to the level of what a biblical encourager should be, does it? What an encouraging church member should be, what I should be, what you should be. And so as we look at our passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 3, we find the definition and the ingredient of biblical encouragement. And this, as God knows my heart, is what I pray for this body. That we would be a church full of Barnabases, characterized by... This type of encouragement. 
And let me just say this, that encouragement is also so much more than just being a cheerleader. It's not just positive, encouraging, K-love kind of Christianity. It's just here to pump you up. Just here to make you feel better. I'm just here to give you the right vibes. It's not that either. It's a serious thing that we need to consider as it relates to encouragement here. And the kind of encouragement that God will use and God will bless. Just as there are many things, we can do them in ways that God does not condone or we can do them in ways that God does condone and will bless. So Hudson Taylor that always said that God's work done in God's way with God's power will never lack God's provision. It's the same here. It's encouragement in a way that God intends us to do it. And here's the thing about this encouragement. This is not encouragement that will last through the day. This is not encouragement that will get you by for another few weeks until someone else encourages you. This is encouragement that is eternal. And it has an eternal matter to it and an eternal weight to it and an eternal joy to it that, that, that runs the deepest and most fundamental veins of saving truth. And so as, as an under-shepherd to the Lord Jesus Christ, one accountable to Him this morning, I, I, I feel a, an increasing burden, I have to tell you. I feel an increasing burden that this would be us. Because I've watched too many people fall away. There are too many people that I know who have fallen away And fallen prey to an evil and an unbelieving heart. And you've watched them too. And it is painful to watch. It's a popular thing today to deconstruct your faith. To walk away. To stray into error. Listen, I went to a Christian college. A conservative Christian college. Not long ago, Nicole and I got out the yearbook, not for any serious reason, but to make the kids laugh. And as we started to turn the page, my heart started to break. How many have fallen away from the faith? People I would have never dreamed of. People of whom I would have said that would not be possible for them. And I don't just mean, well... They change the way they view this secondary issue or that. I mean, fall away from the faith. My own roommate took his life. And before he died, he said he didn't know what was true. Leader on campus, Christian college, engaged in the student. Everybody loved him, revered him, looked up to him. It is possible. That there might be some among us with an unbelieving and evil heart. And our job as a biblical Barnabas in this church is to encourage in a specific way that this may not happen to anyone here. Because we've got the watch. We're on post. And we are guarding and encouraging one another's souls well towards a specific end. And so how do we do this? Well, the second thing I would say, not only do we need to define what type of encouragement we speak of, and this is the eternal encouragement that is always directing us to Christ, but we also need to determine the outcome of the encouragement we're giving. We need to ask, what is the outcome of my encouragement? Am I only seeking to cheer people up? To get them to feel a little less down? 
to redirect their focus for a moment away from trials and to divert their focus. If that's all we're trying to do, brothers and sisters, we don't need the church. You can dial certain telephone numbers and go to certain websites and get your inspiration cube. But if we're trying to steer people to Christ, we must be a certain sort of encourager. There's no shortage of placebos, but there is certainly a shortage of ministers of encouragement of the sort that Barnabas was. Who furthered the mission of the apostles. And what was the mission of the apostles? To turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. There are two words that I want you to notice in the text this morning that stand in sharp contrast. And they're the outcomes of one's life. You will either go one or the other. And encouragement will be the deciding factor in this case as to where we may or may not end up. I want you to notice, first first of all, there is a problem in verse 12. There is the potential that because of an unbelieving heart that one may fall away from the living God. We're not talking about, well, bless their heart, they were Baptists and they became a Bible-believing Presbyterian. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a shift in secondary things, as important as they may be. We're not, we are talking about walking away from the God of life. And the reality is that within any body of believers, within any church, this perpetual Perennial threat remains, and we must be on guard. It's not an immature heart. It's not a struggling heart. It's not a stumbling heart. This is evil, and it is unbelieving. And there is the possibility that this eternally damning heart might surface, and some could be overtaken by it, by their own flesh, They could be scandalized by the world's lies. They could be persecuted as some of the people in the book of Hebrews would have been. They could have been persecuted into timidity and renounced their faith. It's possible. The word fall away here is the word that you are well familiar with by another manifestation of the word and the word is apostasy it's the word from which we get apostatize we're warned in scripture that there is a great apostasy coming the book of hebrews is given as an antidote in this portion of it at least to that great falling away and we are unwise if we do not acknowledge that we are living in a great time of Apostasy. I want you to notice while we are shocked and scandalized as we should be by the word apostasy, that is a terrifying thought. It is a irrevocable denial from which you do not return. That's terrifying, isn't it? There are exit ramps in the road of life that you can take for which there is no getting back on the highway. To deny there are sins that lead to death. There is a possibility of denying, and the writer says, here is what it is. They fall away from the living God, from the only hope of salvation they turn away. But equally frightening is the way that it happens. Notice the text again. They fall away with an evil and an unbelieving heart. We get from this word the idea of hardening. But it's not an instant hardening. It's over time. 
It's not like the fast-setting concrete that we use so much today. This is the old-fashioned stuff that takes time to cure and time to harden. And it happens little by little. It happens incrementally. It's passive. It's over time. It's a slow hardening. It's a slow erosion of the soul and of the faith. The larger context, were we to go on in the rest of this chapter, we, we would understand that the illustration the writer uses to say, no, I'm going to give you a picture of what this looks like. The picture that he gives is the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. They heard God. They saw the mighty miracles of God. They experienced the provisions of God. They benefited from temporal blessings from God. And they ultimately denied Him. For what? A dumb statue made out of their own jewelry. How's that thing, God? You gave the gold for it. Somebody pulled up out of a mine. That's not God. But you're willing to trade the one who parted seas and caused Pharaoh to let you go and sent plagues and sent manna and provided for you water where there was no one. I mean, you're really going to make that? Yeah. But the writer of Hebrews says it was a slow progression. It was one grumble, one complaint that led to another complaint that led to one thing. And until they were so hardened that they denied the living God, it can happen. That's the terrifying reality. That's why we must walk humbly, not proudly. Confident in who God is. Confident in the graciousness of God's provision to us, but never cocky. Dependent, but not entitled. We understand that God is sovereign over all things, our salvation, our perseverance in the faith. But that does not mean we're fatalist where we ignore it and say, well, that's done. Let's move on. No, we must tend to it and guard it. David McWilliams in his commentary writes this. Daily, speaking of this kind of encouragement, to guard against the falling away says that it is daily encouragement of one another within the household of faith ordained by God as a means for bringing his people home. He goes on to say a faithful walk does not happen alone. The encouragement that comes through the preached word is to take such a hold of the hearts of all of God's people that they learn to repeat the encouragement of God's promises to one another throughout the common course of life. So here would be my hope. Today you take Hebrews 3 and it grabs so a hold of your heart that every time you encounter each other throughout the rest of this week, you point each other to the substance of this text. We must encourage one another in such a way. We must be, all of us, encouragers in such a way that, that every day and every encounter that we see one another, that we have with one another, that we're in preparing one another to go home. To meet the Savior. A little more. A little more encouragement. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. This is not pragmatism, by the way. This is condescension. I have become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. Paul understands he's not doing the saving, but Paul understands he does do the encouraging. Remember, God ordains the end and the means to the end, and the means is encouragement. 
And we do this in every component of our life. We do it by our words. We do it by the examples that we set. That we're always encouraging and building one another to a position that when none of us would ever fall prey to an evil and an unbelieving heart. And we're steadfast in it. We cheer when cheering is appropriate. We rebuke when rebuke is appropriate. We instruct where instruction is needed. We comfort where comfort is needed. But in all things we are working to ensure that a great falling away does not occur. The point of encouragement is that in everything we do, we take people back to the place. Notice what he says. In verse 14, we have become partakers of Christ. Where are we encouraging them to? We are encouraging them to a certain place. Prepositions matter. To Christ. In Him. Of Him. There's a second word here that's vitally important. That we need to grab a hold of that is in verse 14 and it is the word assurance in sharp contrast to apostasy and falling away and and being hardened over time is this aspect of assurance and the author says not only are you to prevent the one from happening you are to ensure that this is happening Assurance. It's a specific type of encouragement. We're not just shooting in the dark, trying to pump somebody up, make them feel better, get them through the day. No, we are to encourage in a specific way here that provides assurance, confidence, a hope. A hope and a confidence that are not, you know, vainly hypothetically placed, no, this is in a plan, a course of action that verse 14 says they've already entered into it and we must encourage them to continue in it. We have become partakers of Christ. That's how you're to encourage one another. You are a partaker of Christ. Don't let go of Him. Don't lose sight of Him. Remember who you are. Remember where you are. Remember whose you are. Remember all that He has done for you to remember and be assured of, to be confident, to be hoping in what you first believed. This is the goal of encouragement. That you keep your eye on Christ. To remain true and confident to what originally produced a hope and an assurance in you. I think apart from falling away, perhaps one of the saddest things that we watch as believers, I'm not trying to be a downer this morning, being honest, apart from watching people fall away, the next saddest thing you can watch as a fellow Christian is to watch another Christian tormented by a lack of assurance. It's heartbreaking. It's so hard to watch. It's so hard to hear. I don't know if God can forgive me. I don't know if God loves me. I, I don't know if I'm... I'm a, and, and it's just this tumultuous, self-fulfilling, repeating thing in their life. And it's sad. And it hurts. But we are called to encourage one another to a concrete assurance. We are to... Not give false assurance, but we are to encourage them to Christ, who is the bedrock of our assurance. And so we must not only define what encouragement is, we must not only determine the two outcomes, one way or the other, 
but we must distill our focus and hone in on what we now need to do. We've defined it. We've seen the outcomes. If it is applied and if it is not applied, and now we must get to work. How do we do it? How do we become what verse 13 commands us to be? Encourage one another. How do we do that? We first of all need to realize we are partakers of Jesus Christ. You see, there, there is no assurance and there is no comfort and there is no encouragement outside of Jesus Christ. We encourage people about their salvation and their connection to Jesus Christ. What happens on days where they don't feel it? How many of you could honestly say, every day of my life, I just feel so saved. Never struggle, never have any melancholy moments, never. To greater or lesser degrees, we all struggle, don't we? What happens if our encouragement towards this assurance that comes for salvation only comes when we can clearly recall an event in our life? Well, I remember where I was and when I was and the wor- exact words I said when I prayed, and that's where my assurance comes from. So, brothers and sisters, what happens when dementia takes over? Do they lose their assurance? Well, if it's Christ that saves, that's not possible, is it? We can't be lost because he has us. It's not in the words that we say, the memories that we have, the feelings that we have. It is in Jesus. Period. Don't go past it. And this is what we're to remind one another of. Because there will be days of great struggle with sin and great struggle with the fallenness of this world. You must stay where you begun and where you begun was assured that Jesus was your hope. Hold it firm until the end. And even when we fail and our minds fail and our bodies fail, know this, that if we are his, he is holding us more than we are holding him. In our encouraging, we are to remind one another that it is Jesus holding us. And all of the riches that are in Jesus Christ. I want to ask you a really profound question this morning. Because it actually is kind of profound. Because depending on how you might have experience Christianity in your past, you might think something differently. But has it ever occurred to you that every letter in the New Testament is written to believers, not unbelievers? This is not to the letter to the unbelievers in Galatia. This is not a letter to the culture of Rome. This is not, it's written to us. Now understand, we may have great motives for evangelism, and we should. But this is the book written to the people of God. No, it has application for them. But it is written for us. And how many times throughout the New Testament do we hear the gospel preached? Brothers and sisters, who's it written to? Us. You know what that tells me? I need to constantly be reminded of the gospel. Of assurance. Of Christ. Lest I at any point develop a hardened, evil, and unbelieving heart and fall away. And it happens to preachers as well as it does to parishioners. 
you ever take your eyes off of where you began and you will end up in a bad place. Has it also ever occurred to you the massive word allotment written to us in the New Testament to remind us who Jesus is? To remind us of what he's done? To remind us how we were all redeemed by him? You see, this is really profound as well. That happens because we forget. Look at the Old Testament. So many of Israel's problems occurred because they forgot Yahweh. And so over and over, we are reminded because we need to be reminded. When the trials of life come, when sin calluses our heart, We need to be encouraged to consider Christ so that the hardening does not continue and we eventually fall away. And you say, well, does that mean you can lose your salvation? No, you never had it if you fall away. But if you did have it, you need this constant encouragement that you don't start to forget what you had. Second Peter chapter 1 is a marvelous chapter. We're told that even as believers we can become like a nearsighted man who forgets that he's been pardoned from his sins. It can happen. So we must all encourage one another to consider Christ and to look to Christ and to to realize it is not us, that it is Him. And He never changes. He has saved. And we are safeguarded in Him. One of my favorite verses. In all of Scripture, I think is so precious to me for this reason. Because I know who I am. And I know how really weak I am. And I know that no matter how weak I am, it does not affect the strength of my Savior. And that verse is Jude 24. Now, unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. It's the same word, falling away. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Think about that. I'm not just there. I am in his very presence. With radiant glory. And I will stand there. How? Blameless. With great joy. I need to hear that every single day. Lest I develop an evil, selfish, self-focused, unassured, unbelieving heart. I need to be reminded that it is Christ who keeps me. I need to be reminded that it is Christ who has saved me. Holding fast what I learned in the beginning. For assurance, firm until the end. And we are to encourage one another in this. Pointing each other in this. Exhorting one another to this. That might mean at times we just put our arm around one another and say, isn't it amazing what God has done for us? I'm just in awe of who Christ is and his love for me. At other times, that encouragement might be be a rebuke. You know, if you continue down that path, you will become numb. And you will be distracted by and lured away by lesser things that will not lead you to Jesus who is holding you. 
Turn around. Get back on the road. Look at the road signs. But we're always clarifying Christ in one another's eyes in one way or the other so that we don't go astray. This is the goal of encouragement. Now I want you to notice how this ends in verse 15. While it is said, and he quotes here, from the Old Testament, from Israel's experience. Today, today, not tomorrow, today. If you hear his voice, if you hear the encouragement, do not harden your hearts. Don't say, I'll deal with it tomorrow. And I'll think about those things later. Today. Because remember, this concrete hardens as it dries. And putting off only results in further hardening. He says there's a precedent for this. Remember that you are not to harden your hearts as when they provoked me. There is a time when God is provoked and he says, that's it. He hardened the heart of Pharaoh. He hardened the heart of Judas. He cut off an entire generation of Israel. And they died in the wilderness. Because they would not hear him today. They hardened their hearts. For tomorrow, and God cut them off. We must encourage one another to Christ so that this does not ever happen. Are you an encourager? What kind of encourager are you? Are you pointing to Christ? Are you pointing to lesser things? And refusing to take up the responsibility as a fellow Christian, a healthy fellow church member, to make sure that in everything you do, you're pointing others to Christ. And remember, I speak not of our obligation to the lost and to the world around us. We do have an obligation to them. But if we can't meet our obligations here, we'll never meet them out there. We must start here. We must encourage one another while it is still called today. Brothers and sisters, Encourage one another today. Before you pillow your head tonight, encourage those in your household. Encourage those whom you will talk to. Maybe even before you leave these doors. Point each other to Christ. That there would never be an evil or unbelieving heart among us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that you have showed us in your Son, the forgiveness that we have in him, the assurance that we have that we are held by him, and that the Lord knows those who are his and that none who are known by him will fall away. But we must, day by day, moment by moment, point each other to Christ to that reality. We need you, Lord Jesus, desperately because we are weak, frail, and sinful. We know that you work by means 
So would you raise up every one of us to be that kind of a Barnabas that would encourage in very explicit and very specific ways to consider Jesus? We can enjoy one another's presence. We can enjoy one another's company. We can feel a sense of joy and exhilaration from being around each other. And that is not wrong or bad at all. But we need so much more. We need Christ. So help us. Forgive us where we have failed to be those kinds of encouragers. And we know that you do. And we know that you build us and strengthen us to be the right kind of encouragers. So help us, Lord. May your word this morning find deep lodging in our heart, even now as we come to your table to partake. May you reveal areas in our own heart where we need to confess sin. To restore. To become what you have called us to be. Remembering that it's all only possible because of what Christ has done. So guide our minds and our hearts right now in this pivotal moment to consider Jesus, to confess our sins that may yet have yet to be confessed. We find mercy in Christ. May we celebrate what Christ has done as we hold the cup and the bread. Remembering and celebrating Christ, your work in us, past, present, and future. We're thankful that though you are not here to dine with us physically, you've given us a meal to share, and we know that your spirit accompanies this as it does the preaching of the word, we commune with you during this time. So draw our hearts and minds again to you. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.